So just to remind us, I'm going to read from, I picked up the Heidelberg Cataclysm over there, and uh, I do like the Heidelberg and the Belgic, although I'm fond of the Westminster as well as an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, I should say that. Um, but I do love question one of the Heidelberg. What is your only comfort in life and death? Uh, and note that the answer is not, I'm going to heaven, so none of this matters. The answer is that I am not my own but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, uh, when you created the earth, wholly the way you intended it to be, and even when we violated uh, your will, that you didn't throw us away or disregard us, but you sought to redeem us, that you chased us down uh, through your patriarchs and through your people Israel and ultimately through your son, Jesus Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to come, not viewing equality with your Father, something to be gripped onto, but willing to be poured into the form of a human. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come to make these things real to us today, and not just dusty old truths of religion. We thank you for all good things, uh, and even this Advent season where you are revealing yourself to the world, even through us. In your Son's name, amen. Uh, okay, so the last two times I was here, three weeks ago and then two weeks ago, um, I talked about, um, well, ritual in general, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about ritual. Um, and then specifically last time I talked about the kind of the Bible's program uh, to help uh, Israel understand, and by Israel I'm always including the New Testament, right? So Israel is basically a Jewish set of texts written by Jews, mostly to Jews, with a little bit of us goy, uh, Gentile overshot, right? So I include them in Israel, and that's important when you talk about ritual as well. Um, and so here's the premise, is that when you go through Scripture from the Eden narrative all the way through Revelation, sorry, Revelation's over here for you guys, uh, when you go through, you're going to see that God is uh, intensely interested that, that his people know certain things. And I don't mean facts about the world. I mean that they are skilled and discerning, and the, the language of wisdom is going to be employed here as well, that they understand not just things about the world. You know, like Solomon, he understood things about birds and trees and, uh, and the Torah as well, but that they understood what God is up to so that when they see something in the world, they can say, okay, that is our God who did that, not something else, right? That's a, that's a big problem in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Uh, people looking at things that God is doing and saying, oh, this is Baal, the God of the Canaanites doing it, or this is Moloch, or this is by a demon he does these things, right? And uh, this is why Jesus chastises people. <clears throat> okay. So how do you get to the point where you know, where you can call a spade a spade, where you can look and call balls and strikes on what God is doing, right? Uh, that's the question. And so the formula is pretty simple. It's uh, God's going to authenticate prophets who are going to guide you to learn how to do this, and they're going to tell you to do things. They're going to actually put your body into action so that you can see what they're trying to show you. And so I'd say the task of theology for both you and I, just normal church folk, and even formal theologians, my other hat that I wear, uh, the task of theology is not to think God's thoughts after him, which is a very popular phrase from a systematic theologian, Louis Burkhoff. Um, the, the task of us as people who need to be wise and discerning is to see what the prophets are trying to show us, including the final prophet, Jesus, and what he's trying to show us is his kingdom and what it looks like. And let's just be honest, it's hard to see the kingdom often, right? So uh, I, I think I said this last time, but 
Uh, our church, I, I live in Newark, New Jersey, and so our church is in downtown Newark, right off Penn Station there. Uh, we're right down the street from a housing project, and, we're, and actually we're going to have 100 kids from the housing project in our church this morning. So we, we bring them twice a week, we feed them, we play with them, we, uh, we interact with them, we try to get the gospel in there as best we can. Um, but when you look at some of their, their situations, when you hear what's going on in their house, when, if you, when you hear the house that you're sending them home to, what's going on there, uh, it's hard to know, like, well, what does the kingdom of God even look like there? What would the kingdom of God look like breaking into their lives? Um, and would I even be able to see it? You know, in, in business terms, when I, I took a couple MBA classes, um, I think this is the only thing I remember from MBA classes, was uh, you've got to define a win, right? And so there's a lot of this kind of like, well, what does it even look like to see the gospel, the kingdom of God coming in a little bit, right? So, so when... I'm going to be talking about some things that sound like they're abstract, but I mean they play out in our everyday lives with real people, right? So they're not, we'll, we'll have to move between those two poles a little bit. Okay, so here's a, a live question on the table for you all. What's the deal with Protestants and ritual? Why do they hate it so much? If, if I can make that bold claim, I came, became a Christian in a charismatic, non-denominational church that voted themselves out of the Assemblies of God in the Midwest, that's, that's quite a setup, right? Um, and many of those people became Christians, or they would say they became Christians through the Jesus movement, and I mean they became Christians. They were raised Lutheran or Catholic or Methodist, but they'd say, I didn't become a Christian until I entered the charismatic church. Uh, and they were especially, I wouldn't say anti-ritual, but they were very sensitive to people trying, you know, like praying the rosary or just reciting the same prayer, right? Just saying the same prayer. We didn't even, I didn't even learn the Lord's Prayer in that church because we never said it. Because it's the idea that you're just repeating mindlessly these words. So what do you think the deal with ritual is? You're just a guess. You, you can speak for a friend if you want. Well, you don't have your Bible open in front of you when you're practicing ritual. Okay, so yeah. Like where's God's word or, you know, it's about what we think. Yeah. Not bad in intuition, right? Like, where is God's word in the ritual? Yeah. There was a perception in certain traditions that was a necessary condition for salvation. Yeah. So doing the ritual uh, actually gets you saved in some way through baptism or through keeping the, the separate ordinances and the sacraments. Yeah. Someone in the back row had two male voices. Yeah, certainly you can understand why the the early reformers. Yeah, the early reformers were facing some very excessive, almost hyper ritualism, and uh, that they believed. I mean, if you read the Westminster, it's one of the exceptions I took when I got ordained. Is I don't actually believe the Pope is the Antichrist. Uh, I hope I hope you don't either, though we can argue about it. Um, but you can understand why there's such strong language if you, if you look at the day. And you can understand why they went through churches and tore down statuary and, and stained glass and whitewashed the walls and painted it with, with the word of God, right? They, they wrote the scriptures on the walls instead of the, the images. Yeah, uh, I think this mindlessness, this hyper-ritualism, this is the, the thing that we're going against. Interestingly, um, the problem of, of Israelite ritual uh, was actually a Jewish problem for a long time. So if you look at the Middle Ages, I, I don't want to do a course on Judaism here, but you know, Jews had a huge problem in the first century, around 70 AD. The source of almost their entire ritualized life was destroyed. 
The, the temple's destroyed. They're expelled from Jerusalem within the next uh, 50, 70 years. And they don't even have access to their ritual life. The very thing that makes them feel like a proper Hebrew person, the very thing that atones their sins, the very thing that gives them access to the physical presence of God on the Holy of Holies, the thing that brings them near to him. Uh, you know, we use that language in the charismatic church, let us draw near, right, uh, from, uh, from Hebrews. Um, that is gone. They have no access to it. And there's this same question that came up in the exile. Can, can Israel be Israel if they can't be near God? They can't practice these rituals. And so by the Middle Ages, you have this movement. I'm sure many of you know this, but uh, they rediscovered the works of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle because the Arabs have been working on this for a long time. And so uh, all of these Jewish and Christian uh, 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 scholars were going and studying in the school of Baghdad, and they were learning, they were rediscovering Aristotle for the first time. And so you have this Aristotelian enlightenment uh, that spreads across Europe that begins in Baghdad, right? So if you want to be an Aristotelian scholar today, you have to know Arabic, right? If you want to be a legit one, right? Uh, you actually have to be able to read Arabic because the best stuff written in the Middle Ages is in Arabic. Um, and so that spreads to the church, and you have people like uh, Aquinas, who kind of Aristotelianizes Christian theology. Um, but you also have this guy named uh, uh, Rabbi Moses ben Maimonides. Uh, maybe you've heard of Maimonides. He writes the guide to the perplexed. Uh, he always has four different opinions on everything, and they're usually mutually exclusive. They don't always add up, uh, which I'm not sure how that's supposed to guide the perplexed. But, <laughs> um, but he actually has to make an argument. I mean, there, there's this long discussion in Judaism. Uh, why is there no third temple? Okay, the first temple gets destroyed. We get taken off into exile. We come right back. It's our, it's our heart's desire to come back and rebuild the temple. We build a, we build a shabby temple that kind of gets us going as, as we go. Herod comes and blings it out and makes a really, really nice temple, nicer than Solomon's probably. Um, uh, and then that gets destroyed, and then they just kind of wander off and go, eh. Um, so, and, and not only that, but they talk for hundreds of years. If you read the rabbis, if you read the Talmud or the Mishnah, they talk as if they are still practicing these things at the temple. They're arguing about ritual practices and how the animals are to be handled as if they're doing this in the temple today. And that temple has been destroyed for hundreds of years. So Maimonides comes along, and he makes this argument. He's not the first, of course, but he makes a strong argument to say it was God's plan all along to move us to the world of thought and prayer. Right? So... Yeah, and he actually says this about his people. Back in the day, when we were you know, old and crusty Hebrews, and we spoke the language of violence and death and animal sacrifice, these were concepts that God could use to speak to us because we were surrounded by a world where people spoke in these concepts. right? Uh, but now we've, you know, we've evolved. We've become enlightened. We're now centuries away, almost a millennia away uh, from ritual sacrifice at the temple. Uh, this is where he wanted to get us, so we should be happy. We're now where he wants us. We're in the world of thought and prayer. The body no longer matters. So with, within Judaism, you have one of the most voracious or stiff arguments for why you don't need to do rituals. Or the, the only rituals you need to do are these systematic prayers, and if you know Jewish, uh, Jewish prayer, these are all recited prayers, so there's no ex extemporaneous prayer at all there. Um, I think we had a similar movement in Christianity, right? From uh, certainly from the medieval period and absolutely from the Enlightenment period forward. Uh, religion. I mean, I'll think of the if. Well, this is a sweeping argument, so I'll try not to make it so sweeping. But if you just think about how 
um, our religious life has, even saying the word religious life, and I said ours, I meant it in the plural, as an American, you're automatically starting to hear that in my personal piety. How good of a person am I, right? That's a very German slash American way to view things, right? There's, a, there's actually a history as to why you think that way. And it has not always been that case, uh, that that was uh, the case. Uh, so when we think, uh, even today, when we think of religion, I even said it in my prayer, the old crusty truths of religion. I actually believe in the old crusty truths of religion. I think religion is a good thing. And I think Jesus was probably one of the most religious people that you've ever read about. Uh, but what do we say instead? I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, right? So God always intended to move us. You know, this is the big innovation of Jesus. He moved us away from the old crusty rituals of, of Judaism into the new truths of spirituality, prayer, thought. And this is where he kind of always wanted us. Um, and I think that is probably one of the most damnable theologies that has found its way into the church and just stayed here. And is not in, in enlightenment, I think, has not helped us at all uh, on this front. Um, let me give you a couple of examples here. We'll actually go to the Bible now. <coughs> to make sure. um, okay, so Genesis 15. And uh, I'm sure most of you know these. If I was talking to all millennials, then we'd have a different problem because they are basically biblically illiterate as far as I can tell, even ones that are raised in the church, um, which saddens me greatly, but it makes my job security even much, uh, that much better. So. That's how I get Yeah, as long as the institutions still value the teaching of Scripture and, and biblical literacy. literacy. Um, so this is these famous passage that Paul's going to refer to uh, in justifying uh, the issue of trusting in God as kind of a fundamental tenet of what it means to be a good Jew and Christian. Uh, and this is where uh, Yahweh comes to Abram the second time, right? So there's three separate times where Yahweh comes and promises the same thing to Abram, right? He reifies the promises to him. This is the second time, and he says, um, you know, he, come, he comes to him at night, and as my Jewish friends would say, being a good Jew, the first thing he does when God, the God of the universe comes and talks to him is, is he complains, right? Uh, he says, um, I don't think that's a good Jew. I think that's a, a, a typical human, right? Uh, what's going to be my reward because I'm childless? I don't have, you know, this guy Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit my stuff. He's worried about the family business. And then Yahweh promises him, um, uh, sorry, this is verse 4. This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And now here's the most remarkable part of that story. And he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Uh, I will replace that word believed with trusted, uh, because that's what the word is and that's what it means. Believe, again, throws it into the, the world of the mind. Uh, everything that is being asked of him here is his entire body, his entire family, all of his possessions. Uh, that goes beyond mere what we, what we call beliefs today or opinions. This is trusting. Okay, big promise. Uh, and then um, Abram re uh, replies with trust, and then Yahweh thinks it's good. He puts righteousness in his credit bank. I have no idea what that means. There's a big debate over this, but it's good. I'll just say that. Second big promise, here it comes. I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. 
and this land is Canaan that he's standing on. Like, I'm the one who brought you out of there, and I'm going to give you this land, and we're going to find out in a little bit this land is actually the entire, the promised land is the entire Fertile Crescent from the Nile, Nile River to the Euphrates River. I don't know why people keep referring to the promised land as Canaan Israel, because it is clearly not that. It's never named that. It's always the entire Fertile Crescent, or what Abram would have called the known world, right? Look at his response. Notice he, he heard a, a, a promise of children as an old man, and he trusts Yahweh and has counted to him as righteousness. He hears the promise uh, of this land being given to him, and his response is, but O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? It's doubt, skepticism. How can I know? And the answer is, like, well, I mean, how can anybody answer that question? It's the, it's the question, um, John's going to hear a repeat joke here. It's the question pregnant at a wedding ceremony, and it should be the only thing pregnant in a wedding ceremony, is how can I know you're going to keep these promises? You're swearing all these vows to me today. How am I going to know? And the answer is there's no way to know, right? I mean, there's, what can you say? What can you do at that moment to say, well, let me assure you that I absolutely will keep all of these vows that I'm swearing to you. And as I said last time, they're, they're absurd vows. Like nobody keeps their wedding vows on a good day. Right? On a good day, you keep half of them, right? Uh, but we say these really far out things to kind of show our intentions that this is what we'd like our marriage to be like in general, right? So what can Yahweh say? I mean, he's basically saying, prove it to me. Let me know that in the future, you are going to do the things that you're promising right now. Uh, so I, I will suggest to you there is nothing that anybody, and if you have children, your children have all asked you this at one point or not. Do you promise? You know, I'll, I'll be there. You know, I'm going to go to my kids' uh, Christmas thing right after this. You promise you're going to be there on time? No. Jesus said, let your yes be yes. <laughs> if I say I'm going to be there, then I'm going to be there, barring some kind of train accident, right? Um, Notice his response. He goes to a ceremony here. Bring me a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That is the best response for how do I know that you're going to do what you're going to say. Bring me some livestock. <laughs> Cut them in half. Lay them out in a little sidewalk, right? I mean, the, the short of the long here is we don't actually know what the ceremony is. It looks like a Hittite land grant treaty. That's the only thing that it looks like where animals are cut into pieces and and the two parties enter in between the pieces, and they swear a grant, uh, you know, I, I'm going to give this land to you, you're going to keep it as long as you're, you know, the rivers flow with water, and there's stipulations for the covenant. And, um, and then the, the symbology of the animal parts is, uh, let me be torn apart like these animals if I don't keep this grant with you, right? And so that, that might be what's going on here, which is really interesting because only God enters the, the animals, and only God makes the covenant, and only God says, basically, if that's correct, let me be torn apart like these animals. And you have to say, well, is that a genuine, is that a genuine covenant if you can't actually be torn apart like animals? And for Jews, that's a serious problem. For Christians, we can go, no, actually, our, our God was torn apart. He was ripped and sacrificed uh, in order to keep this covenant that we kept breaking, right? So it works out well for us, as it usually does in theology. Um, <laughs> I, I work for a Jewish institute, so we, we have these talks all the time. Like, what do you do with this passage? Um, so um, just notice then that the, that, the, that the reason he walks him through that, the question is, how shall I know that you're going to do this thing you're going to do? So he does this really cryptic ceremony. And sorry, in verse, uh, sorry, 
Uh, I'm using a borrowed Bible, and I know where it all is on the page on my own Bible, so I'm... Oh, there we go, verse 13. And Yahweh said to Abram, this is in the middle of the ceremony, knowingly you shall know that your offspring will be sojourners. And then he tells him the story that's going to happen to his children. And then he ends that with uh, verse 18. Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. How shall I know? Ceremony, ritual, put your body through it, and that's how you'll know that I do this, right? Um, With the end of knowledge. It doesn't stop there. Leviticus 23, we could go to lots of places, but we'll just go to my favorite. Leviticus, by far, you know, probably the best book in the Bible, at least the Old Testament. Uh, The most underrated and has the most going on in it, by far. Um, I'll just put it this, Jesus quotes, loves to quote Leviticus, right? It's probably his favorite book to quote, and everything that you think Jesus said, he didn't actually say. He's quoting Moses from Leviticus. So, love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Leviticus, right? Uh, he knows. Uh, you get to the ceremonies, the ritual life of Israel, and they're to perform a couple of annual ceremonies. Passover, Sukkot, which if you live in New York City, especially this part, you see the Sukkot booths or tents, you know, where they're supposed to live in the tents, but they basically just eat outside of the restaurant or whatever they do now. Um, uh, the Feast of Weeks, you have a couple of these, right? Um, But it's interesting to me that in Sukkot, right, the one who is supposed to go out and live in a tent uh, for one week or a booth or a a shelter, a a handmade shelter. And what's the purpose of that? If you go to Leviticus 23, 43, 42, right above the 24 there, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. Now, that's a funny commandment, if you want to look at things in the sense of rules, because it seems to me that the easy... If you, look, if you want your kids to know, like I have all these stories. Hey, back when I was in the military, I did X, Y, and Z, right? I can just tell them, just so you know, when me and your mom first got married, this was something that happened in the first year or something. You can just tell them facts, But this says something more. This says, no, they know the facts. They need to know something about the facts. They need to, uh, in order to understand the facts properly, you need to embody this ritual. Once a year, you need to go out into a hand, make a shelter, and then go live in it for seven years so that you understand something about the fact that Yahweh made your your ancestors to live in uh, these booths as he brought them out. That's a very different view of knowledge than we typically take, right? This idea that you can just transfer facts through books or through spreadsheets or something like that, um, but rather that you actually need to do something in order to know. I should say, I don't actually think it's any different whatsoever than the way we operate today. I think it looks different or sounds different to our modern ears, but it's actually exactly the same way we do everything uh, today. And then the Lord's Supper. Go to Mark uh, 14. I think that's where I wanted, yeah. I'm just hit, you can tell I'm hitting the high highlights here. Now, uh, as I said two weeks ago, you can't read the Lord's Supper without thinking of Passover, right? It's given in the context of Passover. Uh, and so, quick question here, here's a quick quiz. What is the purpose of Passover? That's a real question. Very intelligent people in this room, so I 
Yes. So to remember the, the exodus of uh, the water crossing, right? And then Sukkot is to remember how he provided for them in, in the, uh, the desert. They're supposed to also keep a jar of manna with them to remind them of the food that he gave them in their generation. But it's, when we say it's for them to remember, who's the them? Let's see if I can press on you. You volunteered. So. Which Israelites? Yeah, it's this really interesting mix of the children and the parents. So you see this um, throughout. It's not just Passover. It's all of these, right? Um, but it's specifically, it's mentioned early on in the giving of the Passover ceremony, not the event, but the ceremony that they're supposed to remember, is when your children ask in the time to come, uh, then you shall explain to them, right? And you're, so it's the parent's job to interpret the history of Israel for their children. Uh, same thing when you get into Joshua. They set up stones on the side of the river, and when you and your children see these stones and your children ask you, when, specifically when your son asks you, what do these stones mean to you, right, that you're supposed to interpret the history of Israel uh, through those stones. Um, what's interesting to me, A, is, uh, again, I don't want to make too big of a deal of it, but it is a kind of huge deal for me, is in, in the Hebrew Bible is the first place you ever find a concern for child, children learning. Like there's an actual educational program built into the system. So Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Hero, Israel, the Lord our God is one. You're to love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then it goes on to say, you shall pierce into your children. It literally says, pierce into them. I think they translate it in the ESV, like teach them diligently or something. It actually says, stab into your children uh, the law of, of Yahweh. Uh, write it on your doorpost. Write it on your gates. Talk about it when you walk uh, along the way, when you rise and when you lay down, right? It's supposed to permeate every single thing you do with your children. Um, this is a remarkable, like, educational program, and it's that children need to understand. And so when we come to uh, the Lord's Supper, we can't separate it from that situation, that it's not just for us and our personal piety so that I personally remember what Jesus did for me on the cross, but it's actually holistic for the entire community, including my children, right? I'm not making a case for whether children should participate or not in, in the sacrament. I'm talking about that it should include them, right, in some way. And this happens, right, when your kids get older or the age where they start asking questions and they see you doing this and you're explaining it to them, they're like, wait, uh, if, you know, your kid at some point should go, wait, that's not really his, his body and blood, right? <laughs> like, no, no, it's, it's symbolic. But it, it's, meant to be, uh, it's meant to be strong symbolism, right? Um, notice here in verse 22 of Mark 14. And as they were eating, he took the bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks to them, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood, of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not eat, uh, drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So if we're to understand the, the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper correctly, it's a ritual in order for us to know something, right? Uh, that's the presumed background and trajectory. So notice that Jesus, it's, it's amazing to me, Jesus doesn't make up new rituals when he comes on the scene. He takes the rituals they already know, the ones they're already participating in, and then he changes them, or what in anthropological language you say, he ritualizes the ritual for this new end, right? So baptism, not new at all. It's a Levitical practice, right? Straight out of Leviticus. Um, that has a kind of a new meaning in the first century because you have, there's these new ideas of water associated with purity, 
that it's no longer just cleanliness, but it's some kind of internal sense that you can have John the Baptist given a baptism of repentance, and that makes sense to people. Uh, that would not make sense out of Leviticus. It would be very difficult to understand how baptism could be equated with repentance in Leviticus, but by the first century, uh, this has changed. But again, Jesus doesn't make up a new uh, practice. He takes one they're already familiar with in ritual. By the way, circumcision, same thing. Circumcision is not a Hebrew uh, ritual. It goes back 400 years prior to Hebrew. The, uh, the Egyptians are using circumcision for their priest. Uh, it's unclear exactly what they thought it was doing for their priest or the purpose of it, uh, but they're certainly doing it. He takes a known ritual and ritualizes it for his purpose. By the way, we just saw this with Abram. If the Hittite ritual thing is true, he takes a known ritual to Abram. I mean, just think about this for a second. When he says, bring me these animals, he doesn't then instruct Abram, you need to cut them in half, you need to lay them out this way. He just tells him to bring the animals, and the next thing we see is Abram performing the ceremony as if he knew what was going on. Uh, which would make sense, considering Abram lived among the Hittites in uh, Haran, he lived up there when he's called out of Haran, that he would have been culturally familiar with the ritual. Yahweh takes a ritual he's familiar with, uh, and he uses it to speak to him in order to show him something that he wants him to see. Right? So these things that uh, Jesus is doing, when he wants his disciples to see the kingdom of God that he is bringing with him, that it has come and is coming and will come, uh, he doesn't say, hey, let's sit around and talk this out, bros. Right, that is not his rhetoric. It's, oh, you want to know, he didn't call, uh, you know, this is the, the famous tagline, he didn't say, uh, come follow me with your minds and I'm going to blow them, right? Uh, he says, lay down, you know, your parents can bury themselves, your property can take care of itself. Lay it down. Follow me. And then if you just watch, what does Jesus do with those people that he's asked to follow him? He doesn't, he doesn't give them uh, textbook lessons on the Torah. He actually tells them to put their body into certain practices. He says, do these things, and you'll see this kingdom that I'm trying to show you. I like Mark. Uh, I said last time because it's, it's short, uh, which is nice. Um, it's efficient. Uh, but also, you get to the very end of Mark, and the disciples never understand the kingdom of God. The only person in Mark that understands the kingdom of God is the centurion at the foot of the cross. The only person on, on the short ending of Mark. If you take the longer ending, then yeah, they get it. Um, but at least on the shorter ending of Mark, it's only the centurion. And so, you, you know, Mark's gospel in some form uh, demanded that you have to keep reading somewhere else to figure out what happened here. Or that you already kind of knew how the story ended up because you're already in a church. You understand these things. Well, in ritualizing, doesn't he actually, I mean, Jesus claims to fulfill the ritual, right? Which is different from just ritualizing. Yeah, but he takes the, he keeps the ritual, right? So in its fulfillment, he's not wiping it away. Notice what he's not, yeah, that's a great point. Um, notice what he's not doing is saying, hey, y'all, I'm actually trying to move you into the spiritual world of thought and prayer. Right? He's like, nope. As often as you get together, put your bodies in this practice so that you can see the kingdom of God that I'm trying to show you. All right, that's, a, that's important. Uh, I would say that baptism and, uh, and uh, the Lord's Supper form the core, but are no, in no way the ends of all ritual and the things that he's asking us to do, right? Um, so that when he sends his disciples out in order to help them understand the kingdom of God, he sends them out casting out demons, healing people. Now, I don't think these are normative practices. I think this is a special time in history where these things are, are happening. Not that they can't happen today, but they're certainly happening in a special way with this, this discipleship training program. Um, but he, again, he's not, asking people, he's not asking his disciples to go teach them the kingdom of God in the sense of what I'm doing right now, having a lecture. Even though I would say what we're doing right now 
is a ritual event. Your bodies are fully involved. If you are thinking, your body is involved. Right? That, that your thinking is not happening in some mind in some other universe, but it's happening fully coexistent uh, with your body. Uh, and even mulling over these ideas as we're talking through them is an embodied process. Here's the danger, okay, and this is, and this is why, yeah, I got just enough time to make the big deal out of it. Um, I actually do think that if you walk through the Hebrew Bible slowly, which I teach it every semester, so I get to, you know, read it again every single, and I get to see new things every, every semester. Um, but one of the things that has emerged loud and blaringly to me now is that this move from merely performing rituals uh, either in the physical sense or merely thinking that you're righteous in the mental sense, eventually, according to the Hebrew Bible, will always end up in exploitation and oppression. Of, of you, others first, and then Yahweh will do it to you. Um, so we're not merely talking about whether God's going to think you're a moral, upright citizen when you get to heaven or not. We're actually talking about uh, the, community, the community itself and the community that surrounds uh, the community of the people of God. Um, so that you can have prophets who are chastising Israel. I mean, just notice when Amos or Micah or um, Isaiah, when they chastise Israel, they're chastising a fully religious Israel. I mean, if we were to put a camera on these people, they are still coming to the temple. They are still offering all their sacrifices. They look very religious from outside appearances. Uh, the problem is, is that while they bring, you know, the, the example I use is, they bring the physical sacrifice in one hand, but Yahweh always intended from Leviticus and others uh, to bring the ethical sacrifice, the way they treated their, their spouse, the way they treated their children, the way they treated the poor, the way they treated the immigrant. Those two things brought together make a proper sacrifice, uh, which is what he was always trying to point them to. So it's interesting to me, again, that when we get to the prophets who are saying, you owe Israel, you're fitting to get damned, uh, because of the things that you have done, and Yahweh is going to come kill you. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the language he's using. Yahweh is going to raise up an empire to come kill all of you and burn you to the ground. And Isaiah, when he hears this, he's like, uh, how bad is it going to be? I'm going to burn him to the ground, and then anything remains, I'm going to burn it again. Prophet, you know, being a prophet was not a fun job back then. But then you look and say, well, what are they doing? What's the diagnosis? What's the problem? The well, problem is, of course, they're oppressing the poor. They're not looking out for the immigrant, the widow, the people who are most vulnerable. And in even worse cases, they're exploiting people at their very moments of vulnerability. Right? That's the worst of the worst indictment. Um, and the prophets don't then say, give up all this showy religion. Get rid of all this ritual. That doesn't, none of that stuff matters. No, they say, you need to correct your rituals. Keep on practicing the rituals. God still wants sacrifices. Uh, because that's how you are clean and atoned for. And, and as Christians, we should say amen, because otherwise the sacrifice of Jesus Christ makes no sense if sacrifice was never the intended process, right? So he says, no, no, keep bringing the sacrifice. You need to bring the ethical behavior as well. The way you treat your neighbor changes the way your sacrifice is received. Same sacrifice is thrown on the altar. Sometimes Yahweh it raises up a pleasing aroma. This is why I know uh, Yahweh is probably Brazilian, uh, because he saves the fatty parts of the meat for himself, and then it's a pleasing aroma when it rises, right? He loves barbecue. Brazilian or Texan, I get him confused. Um, 
And then sometimes he smells their offerings and it's stinky and he hears their songs and he says it's, uh, it's noisy and he wants them to take it away and he despises it. I mean, the, the rebuke of Amos is, is, is as strong a Hebrew as you can get as far as damning people. But notice he's damning them for bringing offerings to the, to the altar, uh, which should, I think as Christians should always make us stop and question, is our religion, our religious practices, are these things actually doing what they're supposed to be doing? If, if you have the ethical piece in hand, yes. So for, let me give you an example. Say we, uh, we are, live up in the north, and we want to bring our, we're an ancient Israelite, we want to bring our grain offering down to the temple to be offered on behalf of our sin, because it doesn't take just animals. We can, we can be forgiven our sin by grain or oil or other things. And so we bring our grain offering down for a sin sacrifice, and we go up to the, uh, to the gate of the temple or the tabernacle, and the priest stops us and says, has this grain been collected from a field, uh, a field which its edges were left for the poor and the immigrants? And if I say no, no, if I say no, no, I, I reaped it all the way to German precision and engineering. I took it all, right? 100% efficiency of crop yield. The priest should stop at me at that point and say, Yahweh doesn't want the sacrifice. You brought the material sacrifice, but he wanted the invisible sacrifice of your ethical behavior as well if you didn't bring those two things together. Um, I mean, the Lord's Supper, right? Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper. Don't come do the material ritual if you have an outstanding problem with your, your brother or sister, right? Or if you know that you're, not, you're doing something that's wrong. Jesus himself, uh, don't bring your gift to the altar. I mean, this is exactly what he's talking about. Don't bring your gift to the altar if you know that you have a brother or sister away, uh, that has a problem with you. This is Matthew 18, Right? But go to, leave your gift. I mean, this is, this is a radical teaching, actually. Leave your money on the table, basically, and go be reconciled to your brother or sister first. Um, it also makes sense why Jesus, when he enters the courts, he starts flipping tables in the temple courts. Uh, everybody knows the flipping tables. Nobody seems to remember that he also picks up cords and starts whipping people and is knocking animals out of people's hands. Now, let's just be honest. If we were in, like, a mall and somebody started doing that to us, we would call the cops, right? We would be, we would be pretty angry if someone started whipping us and knocking our bags out of our hands. Uh, so this is a very extreme description we see of Jesus, which to me forces the question, why is he that mad? Why is he so upset? Um, and the answer that's come back is, um, A, people are probably buying their animals in the courts because they want... Uh, they don't want to do the hard work of actually tending their own crops and tending their own animals and making sure that they bring the best one down when they can just go down and buy a sacrifice-ready animal from the priest. That's probably one of the problems. But B, I think, which is even worse, there's a half-shekel uh, temple tax, which if you have money, a half-shekel is no big deal. But if you're like the 99% uh, of people in this area who are not landowners, who are, uh, who are being taxed by the Romans and taxed by the landowners themselves, a half-shekel uh, temple tax means that a lot of us can't even get in there to give sacrifices. Even if we had an animal that we brought down to sacrifice, we wouldn't have the money to enter the courts and offer the sacrifice. There's a, an, another question as to whether he is upset about the Gentiles not being let in uh, as well. All that to say, the ritual life has to come with the ethical life. And when those come together, it's a pleasing aroma uh, to God. And when people try to sneak in just the material sacrifice, uh, that it's never uh, good. Okay. Uh, one last thing before we quit. 
I think what's important, and Jamie Smith was here a couple weeks ago, I heard, and this is part of his uh, You Are What You Love, and I know he's talked about this a lot, and I, I don't know what Peter Lightheart talked about, but um, it's worth repeating. If it is true that in order for us to know something, we have to kind of figure out who can show it to us and then do the things they tell us to do and, and embody the rituals that they tell us to embody in order to see what they're trying to show us, And again, I think that's true whether you're trying to learn how to read x-rays or whether you're trying to learn how to become a mechanic or whether you're trying to learn how to become a mathematician. You have to fully embody the rituals that they're telling you. Um, Then it it must be the case uh, that all of our knowing happens that way, right? So from our children, from being children growing up, uh, to whatever it is that you're good at, however you learn it, I'm going to guarantee if I say, okay, what are you an expert at? Will will just review your history, and as we wind back the tape, we're going to find all kinds of embodied processes that you, you were put through. And I'll say, well, why did you do that? And the answer is going to be something like, well, so-and-so told me I should do this. Um, why did you listen to so-and-so? Well, because they have some measure of success, or they're an expert, or they've got a PhD, you know, which those of you with PhDs know that doesn't actually mean that much, but it sounds like it does to some people. Um, and what we're doing is we're trusting somebody and enacting uh, what they, their instructions in order to see what they're trying to show us. If that's the case, then it means that all of us are constantly embodying the rituals and the practices that somebody is prescribing to us. Uh, and by that, I mean even the, the clothes I'm wearing, right? My daughter said it looked okay, so I trust her. Um, workout routines. Right? I mean, just think about this. We live in New York. Okay, so when I first, when we first, no, sorry, we live in New Jersey. It's almost, believe it or not, it's almost worse in New Jersey. And by worse, I mean the, um, I don't know what you call it, the appearance regime, the kind of tyranny of how you look. Uh, so in New Jersey, it's all muscle head. I don't know if you, if you go over to New Jersey, you'll see, I was like, I asked my wife, is there an inordinate amount of really muscly guys over here, or is it me? Like, I feel very dainty when I, uh, even at church. <laughs> Like, there's a lot of guys who know martial arts and that are very muscly, right? Uh, and I don't know what has happened in New Jersey that has spawned this, uh, but I've been told, it's, and, if, and I watched the Jersey Shore once, and I was like, okay, there's something going on here, right? This makes sense. Um, but how we look, right, where, like all of these practices are being prescribed to us by somebody. Sometimes they're just cultural voices. Sometimes it's just the way we think the world is. We think... Okay, if I want to be successful, then I need to get a college degree, and then I need to get this internship, and then I need to go work here. We're listening to somebody's voice. Uh, and if that's the case, then what we, the church, need to do is be very critical about whose voices we're elevating, right? So there's this, if everybody who's been a pastor knows, uh, you, you always learn the hard way as it goes, um, that you need to be very careful who you let preach in your church, right? Um, so I don't know what they're doing letting me in here. Uh, blindly, but you need to be very careful who, who gets behind the pulpit. You need to be very careful with our children, as we know, what we look, let them look at. I was, remember this is 10 or 15 years ago, a woman at our church is saying, hey, can you talk to my daughter? She's having really like identity issues and um, self-esteem issues, like her body, she's really upset about her body. Now her daughter's beautiful, right? Uh, beautiful in every way, inside and out. Insecure, uh, and so I go over to their house uh, to just have coffee and, and talk and see whether what I, I decided it wasn't going to be me. It's going to have to be a woman who has to come and talk to her. But um, and I am not lying. I walked in her house and every flat surface had a Cosmopolitan, an L, uh, every magazine you can possibly imagine, with every 
bizarre body shape that has been photoshopped into another bizarre body shape that is completely impossible, even for the women of those magazines to live up to. And I'm like, okay, these are the voices in your house. Uh, and your daughter is going to embody the practices according to those voices to, to see what they want her to see, which is they want to, she wants to see a better her or a her that looks like them. And so, yeah, she's going to do whatever people say in order to get that, right? This goes back to Jamie Smith's You Are What You Love. So um, maybe we could be... Uh, well, I'll end by saying this. And I, I talked about this last time. I'll tell it in a little more detail. I grew up in Oklahoma in the 1980s, 70s and 80s. And uh, I, I don't know if anybody remembers Christianity back then. I was not raised in a Christian home, but Oklahoma in the 70s and 80s was as Bible belty as you can get. Oral Roberts University, anyone? Uh, and uh, so even I, just through the cultural voices of Oklahoma, uh, knew that there was Satanism and devil worship. Remember that was really big in the 80s as there's all these secret satanic cults and all these records, you could play them backwards and they'd have these hidden satanic messages in them. Things that sound completely, I tell my students this and they're like, no. I'm like, yes. There are entire books written on uh, this where people are trying to tell you the Beatles were all Satanist and trying to convince the kids. <clears throat> and so uh, me and my buddies were drinking or something, walking through some woods on the edge of town uh, of, of Tulsa, where I grew up, and uh, we ran across a fire pit that had chicken bones scattered all around it, and then like pentagrams scratched into the dirt. And, uh, and this is at night, and we were drinking, right? Uh, and so I remember, so even as a kind of non-religious person, someone who I would have called myself an agnostic if I knew what that word meant at the time, uh, I remember thinking, like, all, me and all my friends were just like, oh, this is dark, this is, this is seedy, right? This is our view of ritual. Um, and as I went, I, I mentioned it three weeks ago, when I went to Mount Gerizim in Israel, I was, I was working, oh, yeah, I need to plug this book. Uh, I have a 300-page book on ritual, by the way. Um, <laughs> but when I was writing this book, I was living in Israel writing this book, and there was, uh, on Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans, which is kind of a Jewish offshoot, they still offer animal sacrifices according to the Torah. They never quit. They do it this day on Mount Gerizim, which is in, uh, right above Nablus in the Palestinian territories. And so they invite the public to come watch the Passover sacrifice. And since I was writing on ritual, it only made sense. I could get to see a real-life animal sacrifice. <clears throat> and I went with my Brazilian friend um, who was staying with us at the time. And we went up and we watched it. He's an Old Testament scholar as well. And we were, uh, and you couldn't go in the fenced-in area where it was going on. And you couldn't actually even see the killing of the animals. There were so many of these uh, people crowded around. Um, it was very fascinating. But I remember the point when they threw the animal up on the spit. And they were wiping it down with salt. And I, I said a little bit about this last time. Uh, and they start roasting these big lambs on a fire. And my Brazilian friend goes, this is chuhasco. This is barbecue. That's, this is ex he's like, this is exactly how we do barbecue back home, right? Uh, with smaller chunks of the animal, uh, not the whole animal on there. And something flipped in my mind. Because even when I was watching that ceremony, I kept on, ex I kept on expecting these dark cultic currents to be just flowing through the whole... I don't know why. Even, even right now when I said I watched an animal, a live animal sacrifice, some of you might have gone, ugh, you know. Um, and I just want to remind you that that impulse to go, ugh, is a culturally conditioned impulse from people who eat meat that they got at a grocery store that was wrapped in styrofoam and cellophane so that you never knew where this meat came from, right? And that the meat that you ate, if you eat meat, the meat that you eat today 
also comes from a live animal sacrifice. Uh, it's just not being done in celebration of something that God has done for you. Uh, it's just being done merely to give you meat, if that makes sense, or to, to fulfill some consumerist demand of meat. So I think there's a couple of things going on when we talk about ritual, and especially the rituals of Israel. And uh, as I said last time, you shouldn't miss the point that when you take communion, it is a live animal sacrifice. It's a memorial. It's meant to remind you the animal here is Jesus, right, the Savior, but it's a human sacrifice. And it's meant to orient you and as a community help you think about what the kingdom of God looks like that centers around a God who sends his son who sacrifices his life on our behalf. Right? And that is not merely pietistically me remembering how bad I am and how much I needed the sacrifice, although that might be part of it. And it's not merely to help my spiritualism flourish, but it's actually to help us as a community think about who we are and how we're connected to the community wide and what God 